welcome to Dads with Daughters. In this show, we spotlight dads, resources, and more to help you be the best dad you can be. Hey everyone, this is Chris and welcome back to the Dads with Daughters podcast where we bring you guests to help you be active participants in your daughter's lives, raising them to be strong, independent women. You know, in every episode of this podcast, one of the things that we try to do is not only introduce you to amazing fathers, but also introduce you to ways of thinking, but also ways in which we can better change and become educated to become better fathers as well. And today we're going to share with you a really important webinar that we did on the Fathering Together Facebook page. And this was a webinar that was entitled Contextualizing This Moment, a Conversation on Race and Friendship. And I wanted to share this with you because I I truly believe that this is such an important conversation to have. In this webinar, we have a number of different guests. We have Brett Holmberg, Corden James, Didon Bruner, and J. Luke Chitwood. And in this conversation, they explored how cross-racial friendships are so critical in today's society. All of us grow up in our own different ways, and we grow up in different types of communities, and some of us have more opportunities than others to be able to build cross-racial friendships. Some of us aren't able to build these friendships until we become adults. But it is so important to be able to build these friendships, to learn and to grow as humans, and to be able to then pass that on to our kids. In this conversation, you're going to hear all about that. It is such an important presentation and one that I hope that you will truly listen to and learn from and be able to gain some perspective of things that you can do to be able to talk to your own kids about this important topic. Thank you all for joining us here at Fathering Together for our next live conversation around race and fatherhood, and in this specific case, uh, cross-racial friendships. We've got some great uh, panelists with us today, and so I want to do a quick round of introductions of them to you all, and then I'm going to actually step away and lead, allow them to lead the conversation with one another. Um, I, I'm really excited for this this time, and if you are listening, watching in real time with us, feel free to share any questions or comments in the chat. I will feed those to our participants as they are talking to help um, weave those questions into the conversation um, at large. But really quickly, I'm going to share these into our our groups on Facebook. So if you'll give me one second, we'll get this going. And as I'm doing this, I will do some introductions of our panelists as well. So first we have Britt Holmberg, and he is here in Chicago with me. He is an educator around social justice work and white allyship, as well as a dad of two very excited children that we might be hearing in and out throughout this call. Um, And they're awesome. They're great. Uh, And then we have Corden James, who's a motivational speaker and community leader out in the Boston area, but is joining us from Utah at the moment while he's on uh, a trip with his kids. So we appreciate you taking a step away from the family, Corden. And next we have Didon Bruner from the DC area. Uh, He does a lot of mediation work. He's a blogger. He runs a community space called On Fathering. Uh, I highly recommend checking out that 
that storytelling space and, and resources that they have to offer. And last but not least, we have Luke Chitwood here in Chicago as well, who does a lot of grant writing and storytelling and consultancy work with nonprofits to help them grow in their their vision and mission. So again, I thank you all for being here. Thank you all for joining us out in the Facebook world. Um, I will now turn it over to let each one of them share a little bit more of why they joined the panel and, and the work that brought them here and step back myself and allow the, the conversation to go. And I'll jump back in at the end to, to wrap us up. So that being said, I'll turn it over to, um, we'll go in reverse order for the introduction so that Luke, you're not last every time. So Luke, why don't you go with introducing yourself and connecting to this, to this work? Cool, thank you, Brian. Um, yeah, really excited to join the conversation today. Um, I am glad to be a part of this and um, coming to this from a background in education, uh, specifically as a high school teacher in college access in New York City and Chicago. Uh, and now as a writer and consultant, um, also a father to an almost three-year-old girl and uh, another who is coming in just a few weeks. Um, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, um, and I think the, the different places that I've lived and the people that I've met are a big part of who I am today and like why I wanted to be part of this conversation. Um, I grew up in an um, extremely homogenous community, um, and have been fortunate uh, in the years since um, to get to meet all sorts of different people in Oklahoma and New York City and Chicago and, and elsewhere too. Um, so I'm excited that our conversation today has lots of places and perspectives um, and backgrounds. Thanks. Hey guys, uh, my name is Didon Bruner. Um, as Brian said, I'm in Washington, DC. You know, when I grew up, I uh, I swam and I played water polo. So I've been in places where I was the extreme minority. Um, then I moved to DC, went to Howard twice, and now I still live in the city. So I've been in places where, I, if I, you know, on my average day, I may not see uh, anybody who doesn't look like me. Um, the other day, I was in a Zoom conversation uh, with uh, one of the guys from Fathering Together. And my daughter commented later, you know, Daddy, I didn't know that you knew any white people. And it occurred to me that, you know, our children's impressions of how they see race has a lot to do with what they see us do. So um, one of the things that I do is I'm a podcaster. I have a podcast called Dad Genes, exploring the DNA of healthy fathering. And I think it's important to have um, conversations that, that deal with the whole spectrum of fatherhood. And race is definitely one of them. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Dayton. My name is Corden James. I am here in um, St. George, Utah at this time. I currently live in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I am currently visiting my two sons who live out here. They're 11 and 12. My daughter is six and she joined the trip with us as well. So I'm sitting in my lovely car now. Um, <laughs> some of my focus has been based around um, community involvement. Um, so I do lead a group of uh, volunteers locally to attach them to local volunteering opportunities. Um, also do that with my daughter. Um, and then we run a couple different businesses, um, little side businesses with her. And so when it comes to fathering, um, a father of three and have been very busy with the process of learning how to um, co-parent with them. Um, I did grow up in a transracial adoption um, from the age of three. So I grew up in Utah as um, 
as one of the few black men in Utah growing up in a white family, growing up in a white community. And um, it has been an interesting aspect, and I hope to be able to bring that here to you today and uh, cross lines with my friends here. Great. Yeah, my name is Britt Holmberg. Uh, I live in Chicago. I have two kids, um, a six-year-old and a three-year-old who give me a run for their money all every day, all day, especially during this pandemic. Um, I am a therapist. I current, I'm a social worker by training and currently doing therapy at a college wellness center. And I also do a training called um, with a, a colleague of mine called Becoming an Anti-Racist Social Worker. Um, so I've been working on trying to help, um, therapists and clinicians integrate principles of anti-racism into like clinical work and therapeutic work. And also my partner, um, my, uh, Megan, my wife is a facilitator or a, she started an organization called speak up, which, uh, works to help teachers and parents talk about race and racism with their children. And so I'm a facilitator with that. And one of the things we talk a lot about is kind of like what uh Dean was saying is just uh, and like our kids are like sponges and they they soak up everything that we say or wh what we don't say and kind of how we react to situations and who we're friends with and so it's really important to me to be modeling um anti-racist parenting essentially um and and in terms of raising up a generation of kids who um aren't going to be that don't think that racism is normal or healthy um, and that are challenging that and speaking out against it. Um, and I think, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to be on this panel was just because there's so much going on around race and racism in our country right now. And I really wanted um, to help people think about what it's like to have conversations that don't end with people, especially across racial lines that don't end with people getting super angry and cutting off, um, but that really allow for deeper understanding and allow for empathy and, and, um, you know, deeper connection. Cause I think that's the way through this. Um, one of the ways through this is, is really hearing one another and supporting one another and feeling the pain of racism um, and and working then to end it um, and to think about how to put a stop to it. Um, so that's that's really one of the main reasons why I wanted to show up and talk about this today. All right, well, we have these questions. Uh, why don't we <laughs> jump in? Excellent. Do we know the questions? Brian? So the, the first one was, how does having diverse relationships impact or inform your ability to get a father? Okay. Say that one more time there, buddy. Sure. How does having diverse relationships impact slash inform your abilities as a father? If you think they do. Interesting subject, brother. Um, I guess I'll start. Sure. So I think if, it, it impacts it hugely in every aspect. My Whoever I bring around my friends, whoever I choose, because it starts with me at the end of the day. Um, the relationships that I choose to have and bring around my children um, are going to be crucial. And it was never a, a subject or an idea of, of needing to mix in more diversity in, into our families and friendships. 
Um, and I think, you know, just being here now with my kids where I do live in Utah and they do not see um, many black men um, and, and fathers and such like that, I think has been eye-opening and challenging to me as well to understand how they see the world, um, you know, where it's racism isn't as, as prevalent, um, where it is much more silent and, um, you know, privilege is, is different for them. They grow up in a uh, mixed family. Um, so, you know, we're going to explore some of those things too. So for me, I think most of what we try to do as fathers is to give our kids context. You know, we travel so that they can see what it's like to be in a different place as, instead of read or just hear about it. You know, we, we take them to experiences so that they can it can add texture to their to their experience. And I think that the relationships that we have also um, on on two different scopes in terms of our children seeing us interacting and agree, disagree, laugh, cry, um, and do different different things with with a diverse group of people, it it gives them permission to, but it, it also informs our context as well. You know, when there's something that, if I had a question about Utah, I now know who I can call, you know? Um, <laughs> Absolutely. And, and having a, a greater pool of, of people, resources to interact with is, is valuable. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, thanks, Jin. And I, I think the like context and texture that you described is a big part of what I want for um, both of my daughters, um, and what I hope to like kind of the the environment I hope to build for them uh, as they're growing up. Um, and I'm also like reminded of your comment about empathy in the intro, Brit. Um, just that. Uh, so much of that, I think, is something that you can't necessarily instruct directly. You can't tell someone how to be empathetic as much as you can show them um, different experiences and different perspectives. Um, and I'm mindful of raising children in a diverse yet really segregated city like Chicago. Um, and I think as a, as a white man, I would be able to either opt out of diversity um, and surround my family just with people that look like me or to, um, but I want us to make the choice to opt in um, where my daughter sees everyone as a neighbor and a friend and um, doesn't respond um, in fear, but responds as, as uh, a friend and, and with empathy to anyone she meets. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think I would echo a lot of what you all have said. Um, I'm thinking about, like, I had a friend over for a social distance beer last night um, who's who's Asian-American. And um, we were, you know, we chatted. We just caught up because we hadn't seen each other in a while. And, you know, I was asking him, you know, how has it been for you with, because I know there's been a lot of um, racism against Asian Americans with COVID and, um, you know, have you been affected mm -hmm. by that? And he has, you know, and he told me a story about how it impacted him and his family. Just, you know, he lives like literally a block away. 
And um, it was really, you know, sad for me to hear that and sad to know that another one of our neighbors who's white um, uh, contributed to his pain and especially like his kids pain um, because they were really confused. And um, I just feel like, um, you know, that that kind of those kind of relationships, being able to have like a real kind of connection with someone and talk to them, that is both that makes me a more kind of complete person um, in the sense that I have a better, clear understanding of like what my neighbors are and what my friends are kind of what their reality is. And then I can, like you all have said, I can provide that context to my children and and say, like, that's not right. You know, like we don't believe that. And like when someone says something that is um, racist or that's harmful, that that's a lie um, and that, you know, we're, we don't, that's not what we believe as a family. And like, let's talk about that. Let's kind of unpack that together. Um, so having those relationships, like allows me to, allows us to, it's not why we have those relationships, but it, it's like a byproduct of those relationships um, helps us to be, more engaged with our neighbors, more engaged with our friends and to provide support and, um, and to speak up like when, if things like that, unfortunately do happen as they do, we know they do. Absolutely. Hey, now brother Bray, I'm curious, are your kids around the same age? My kid, my oldest is six and I have a three and a half year old. Okay. And then your friend is his kids around the same age as well. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So he, he has two of our kids are about the same age. And then he has a, an older daughter who's I think in like third grade. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I see. I, I think that's, that's interesting seeing how that impacts a family. Um, you know, what are their conversations based around that actual impact of that event and what are they doing going forward? I feel like that's very valuable for you to be able to hear to see how, you know, to be able to take that back and hear from, you know, how would you address it with your family? And even better, if, the, if you know, if you can get both of your families together and be able to talk about that in an open discussion, I think that's mm-hmm. even more valuable because you get that, that real-time feeling of the rawness of experience that. Because unfortunately, sometimes we don't always recognize racism, nor can we call it out if we don't recognize it. Um, and I think, you know, as, a, as an ally, I think that's one of the most important things is being able to, I'm going to recognize it, but being able to see, and, and same, racism goes both ways too. Um, but being able to see the, um, not just the unjust side of it, but the slight misappropriation of the words or the situation. Hmm. Yeah. You, know, you used the word byproduct, and I, and I think that was a perfect phrase because it triggers um, a thought that, you know, we all have blind spots. Um, and then one of the byproducts in having, you know, spouses and people around us who are not just like us is they help us to see our blind spots, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, it, it doesn't even have to be specific, overt, but just in interacting with them, um, we learn a little bit more about ourselves and, um, the more blind spots that, that we can be aware of, um, not that we'll be perfect, but we just kind of, we're, we're able to develop, uh, a better sense of checks and balances as we go along. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I just wanted to appreciate um, your use of the word byproduct because it made me think. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Thanks. I, I, I definitely feel that. Like, um, and that's 
yeah, I think that's a lot of what, what sort of flows out of these relationships is just like me being aware of my blind spots and, and then working on that stuff so that I, they're not there or they're not um, causing pain or, or hurting others. Mm. Absolutely. So question number two was, how do we talk about race when we aren't talking about race? And I love this question, so I'm just going to jump in. Um, Go for it. <laughs> with my daughter, our conversations are value-based. And I think that values are consistent across the board. You know, uh, in terms of if we're talking about inequity, be it how girls are treated instead of boys, how bigger kids are treated instead of little kids, dealing with bullies, dealing with teachers, dealing with authority figures, those values tend to tend to be where we always boil back down to. So when it's an issue about race, um, we can also have those values. You know, how do we treat people? What are the things that we expect? What are our expectations of you? And you know, you'll hear a lot of things like unfair, um, and that's not right. Uh, but even that is based on what our kids feel, what their values are. You know, um, and so if you don't have those conversations, then it would be very difficult, I imagine, to have a conversation about race because it's not anchored in anything. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh -oh. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about like providing that context for, yeah. for your kids. David, can you restate the question again, brother? Sure. How do we talk about race when we aren't talking about race? And, and I'll, I'll give you an, an example. When we talked about, unfortunately, my daughter saw the video of, of George Floyd um, being killed. And she said, you know, but that cop isn't white. And so it, we boiled it back down to values. You know, what is your responsibility when you see someone doing something that they shouldn't be doing. You know, what is your responsibility when you're with your friends and your friends suggest something that you know is not right? So yes, there, there are definitely issues of race here. There are definitely issues of, there are a million different issues presented by that video. But when I think about what I wanna to talk to a nine-year-old about or what kind of tools I want her to have in her toolbox, one, how to stand up when you don't, when you see something that is wrong, two, uh, when you are doing something that may not be wrong, you know, are you are you able to be corrected? You know, um, one of the things I tell my daughter and her friends are, I like that you guys hold each other accountable to your best. You know, um, because it can be the exact opposite way, and so um, that's one of the ways we had we had that conversation. That's where we started. I mean, that conversation has had a lot of iterations, as you could imagine, but I think starting in terms of what is it that uh, that we know is right, and working from there has been helpful. Mm -hmm. I think, like for me and, and my partner, it's about it's also about like what, like what sort of books are we reading to our kids? Um, what sort of media are we exposing our kids to? Um, because you know, so much of racism, I think. And what kids learn about race gets passed through the media. 
Um, and so like, you know, we can say one thing and then they can watch a show or they can read a book and be like, wait, but that's not what you said, you know, and they can get these mixed messages. Mm -hmm. So I think the statistic is like white kids need to be exposed to, especially if they live in like a predominantly white community, they need to, the books they need to read need to be about 60 to 70%, um, characters of color, um, for them to balance out the sort of the the sort of messages they they are getting about um, white supremacy and racism, and so like we're very intentional about the books we read our kids. We try to lift up um, both activists and people who are doing like heroic things, but then also people who are like kids who are doing everyday things, right? And families who of color who are doing everyday things um, as a way to try to challenge some of these negative stereotypes that they are likely picking up from the media or from whatever else, you know, they're, they're getting school, that kind of stuff. Um, so I think that's one way that we try to talk about race and that those lead to other conversations. Um, but not always, sometimes it's just, we're reading a book about, um, this child and their experience and, and that's, we leave it at that. But other times it leads to like a deeper conversation about, race and racism. Um, so it, it kind of provides that context, uh, like you're saying, Dean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate the like intentionality behind like what you're sharing and how you're describing like, the way you and your partner describe the, um, have decided to raise your children, um, who we may get to meet shortly, it sounds like. Yeah, um, <laughs> knocking uh, on the door. Um, and it, I think a lot of the conversation like nationally right now is, um, like, I think there's a good portion of the population that already knew that racism was systemic and another portion that is coming to grips with that for the first time. Um, but if we're going to overcome something that is systemic, then it takes intentional work to tear that down. Um, because the like when you're not being intentional what our children are seeing on magazine covers and anything um they're looking at on um online or media whatever else like it's um a, a lot of those messages are counterproductive to the principles and values we're hoping our children will adopt um so yeah it make i hadn't heard that statistic but it, it makes sense that you would have to be intentional um to such a to such a strong degree um and i like i certainly growing up where i grew up like i had um i did not have that experience um and i'm like daily having to uproot things that i find in myself and i would like to spare my daughter that experience um and, yeah mm -hmm. i'm uh, mm -hmm. I, as you were talking i was reminded of a, a group of students I got to work with in Chicago, um, a number of, um, like, I worked with a really diverse college access program. We intentionally, like, pulled students from all over the city because uh, neighborhoods in Chicago are themselves very segregated. Um, and through that experience, I, I remember a conversation with, like, three or four um, Black high school young men, um, just, like, the program was based on like STEM enrichment and they were just like complete nerds. Um, and I just loved hearing them talk about um, 
comic books and video games that I had never heard of. And I was just like, to your point of um, both like heroic and also everyday conversations. It's like, this is um, like, it was edifying to me to, to be able to observe that kind of conversation and be like, I, I've been as a white young man growing up, I, I was in conversations like that. Um, and how, like how much those, like having that experience now um, just increases my ability to, to empathize and see the humanity in everyone. Mm. You know, that's interesting while I, uh, you know, while I sit here in Utah and again, if anybody's not been to Utah, it is majority white and Mormon. Um, and, you know, there are Hispanics and such like that. So it very much is more white and Hispanic based um, area. And, you know, just as we have this conversation, I think about everywhere my kids and I are going through. And typically we're the only, you know, black family walking through. And I wonder, you know, all, you know, the conversations that we're having right now, how can I spark that conversation with somebody, a friend here where this is going to sound silly, but when I leave there, they, I don't know when they're going to see another black guy. Because unfortunately, mm -hmm. where, where I live, I am the example for most people in my life. I'm the most, I'm the one black guy that they knew or know. Um, mm. So throughout all this, most of, uh, most of my amazing white friends have reached out to me to figure out, like, how do we have those conversations? Because we're scared to have those conversations, you know, because it's, it's, it's Black Lives Matter and it's um, uh, Blue Lives Matter. And, it, you know, the world is just so split on you can't be, you can't have any middle ground. You got to choose a side when all of it does matter. We're talking about something specific here, but how do we spark those conversations where people aren't going to be exposed to, uh, um, excuse me, people aren't going to enjoy the beauty of diversity. I, I, I am not sure how do you educate that's a bigger level than us. But again, I think it goes back to these conversations we, we talked about as fathers. Um, you know, I, I'm going to see some fathers this week and I'm sure I'm a conversation with them and just, you know, because especially where they live, I'm just curious where the mindsets are at and if there's any way that I can help influence and open a conversation around it. And, and I never really thought of it until now being so far from you know Boston where I do have diversity I haven't been home for 14 years, so I didn't realize, mm. um, you know, Luke, Luke, like you're saying, like where you, you know, the type of life where you come from. Um, you know, I grew up in that exact, exact type of lifestyle, being the only um, colored man. And, you know, it, those things are important. And we, you know, I try to show my kids, um, you know, there are black leaders um, out there and, and leadership. And that's important to know. So when they see a, a business owner, um, that it's not just that anybody else but black men are, are doing that because we are. And I, you know, I'd watched a conversation recently um, and a lady made a comment about knowledge and how we get through this. Obviously, it's based off education. Um, and part of that education is, is knowing how great that everybody is, right? That each race has greatness in it. And even though our history books tend to tell excuse me, to tell a very strict narrative. Um, it doesn't tell the whole story of everybody. So understanding that everybody is great and taking the time to learn those, um, obviously we know is going to be paramount. paramount. Um, I just, I'm not sure um, 
how do you maintain those conversations in a area where they're not going to be exposed to the diversity? What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. according, I made a decision that it's not my desire to convince anybody, right? Like I would never sure. try to convince someone that, um, that, that as a father, I, I am relevant in my child's life. I'd rather spend that right. time being relevant in my child's life. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not spend, spend time talking about the, the value of walking on two feet or all of the different things that I happen to do. So if, mm-hmm. if it's a conversation, I'm willing to have it. But if just as a, for example, as just a premise, if you don't think fathers are important in a kid's life, it's probably not someone who I'm, who I'm interested in speaking to. If you don't think right. that does matter, okay, that's, that's you, and I don't feel the need to spend any of my bandwidth trying to convince right. someone who's made up their mind some other way. Um, now, as it relates to once we're on the same page about just the basic foundation, yeah, fathers are great, and then we can we can butt all you know all the other aspects. You know, um, if you think that racism exists, and this is something that we want to address so that our kids can be better, then we can brainstorm and have the conversation all day long. But the exhaustion to me comes from trying to have that fundamental foundational um, concept and, and not even agreeing on that. And so that's not something I'm willing to engage on because I don't think it's valuable. Um, and that's, that's just my own personal line. Um, it, you know, and as a, to give you a, some idea, I'm a single parent. Um, I'm a single co-parent, actually. My, you guys know this. The audience doesn't know this. My internet was acting up, so I'm actually in my daughter's mother, in my my daughter's mother's home right now while I filmed this. So we work well together. Um, so I'm not the one to talk to about hating the other spouse or the or invalidating the the, the other the other part of the child's uh, relationship. I'm not saying those circumstances don't exist. But I think that the value can be added. And then part of, I guess, being a mediator is finding that common ground. And once we have that initial common ground, we can go a million different directions. But um, that common ground is important or else, like, again, the conversation is not anchored. Yeah, I think that's that's super important, um, right? Because some people set up their lives to not have to think about race, um, specifically white folks that I know set up their lives to not have to think about race or not have to interact with anyone who's different than them. And like, you know, they will be the, oh. the first people to say like, I'm not racist. And to which I'll say, okay, but are you anti-racist? Right. And, um, cause there's a difference. Right. And I think oh. I really appreciate how the conversation is shifting around that in the country to saying like, it's not enough just to not be racist, but like are people, working on being anti-racist because to me that's like a more active kind of or proactive process um where people are really working on their stuff right and owning their blind spots and saying yeah like i've got i've got stuff that i you know it's in the air we breathe right and i um i'm not proud of it but like it's my responsibility to take some action around that right because i don't want to keep passing this down to my kids and like, those are the people that I want to invest time and energy into people who are at least at that point. Um, and I'm hopeful that more and more people will get to that point. Um, so they're ready to sort of look at themselves and be honest and, 
and um, you know take takes make some different choices and take some different actions um, and definitely invite anyone and everyone into that conversation because it's I think for the future of our country and for the future of our our kids like we need to be having these these difficult conversations um, so I, I just want to say I really I really hear you Deden. You know, if nothing else comes from this moment in time, I think just the paradigm shift from simply not being racist, not being enough. You know, in baseball, we understand tie goes to the runner. You know, as it pertains to this system, your neutrality goes to the racist. Because yeah. this is a system that you're standing by and doing nothing will only continue. So if, if, I mean, I hope that systematic change comes or systemic change comes, but if nothing else but people realizing and recognizing that everybody has a role and you opting out or opting to do nothing is actually playing a role that someone has for you to continue their system, then I think that we can be able to even have some incremental growth. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's good. I appreciate that. And um, Gordon, like I, I hear the, I, I hear and appreciate the heart behind like your initial question or your musings about um, like how you can contribute to that. Um, but yeah, I also agree that like, I think it's, I think people that look like me need to take more of the responsibility um, and um, like you're already carrying a lot of that for your community, it sounds like, um, and um, like more power to you for for what you've done and what you continue to do. Um, but um, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot more that like I personally need to take responsibility for and um, and people that are like in my in my life and are more likely to encounter me and listen to me um, need to hear stories that contradict the the little bubble that they've constructed for themselves um and i think um yeah wherever we can present narratives that um deconstruct that or or counteract that like that's that's a responsibility that i need to act on and um other white folks need to act on um and that's like that's how we can work together to to tear down that system uh, we have a question from facebook it's you can take your pick either how do you find those in your community who are anti-racist or how do you help people move from i'm not racist to being anti-racist particularly as it relates to the children mm. particularly what was the last part bud as it relates to their children so i, I can read it again how do you find those in your community who are anti-racist? Or the second question is, how do you help move people from I'm not racist to being anti-racist, especially as it relates to children? Mm. So I would say finding somebody that is not racist. Today, you need to be at a protest. Mm. I would say it would be the best option. Um, being active in the community and and going to the you know to, to the the candlelight vigils the rallies participating in that would probably be your most info you know impactful way to uh, commune with others 
that are at least, you know, have that guard down or open-minded. That's probably the best way to find them. Um, outside of that, you know, it's, it's, it's going to have to come from your conversations. I would say, um, I can, I can never tell when somebody is racist, um, until they open their mouth and say something or do something. So unfortunately it's not a blatant thing and, you know, being neutral or being an ally is not a blatant thing either. No one's walking around saying like, Hey, I love black people or I love Mexicans or I love Asians. You know, it's our interactions and the way that we treat each other, um, which again, it's not a blatant sign. Um, Those conversations are going to be crucial. No, you're absolutely right. Because there are people who love those groups whose actions still might reflect racism. You know, know, there are people who may be married to someone who who is displaying bigoted um, actions. So that's, so, I mean, that's so, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. So even um, so, like my grandfather was racist, right? So my uh, my parents adopted me. My uh, my two white parents adopted me. Uh, my father's dad did not like that um, they had chosen to adopt me. Now this is in the '90s. Um, eventually, they did fall away from that. But those are one of those things that passed along to my brother, my oldest brother, who was closest with my grandfather who, you know, would come home and use those slang and use those terms. Um, so it's tough because you can't always know when and where that, um, what is it called? It's like a, a hidden bias where you're not, you're not really aware that you are racist uh, mm-hmm. because of, you know, the area you grew up in or, or your personal beliefs until you're exposed to that situation. You got to, you know, you have to be exposed to that stimulus or that trigger, which again, unfortunately is diversity. Um, that's a lot of times when we find out that somebody is, uh, feels a different type of way when they are challenging their status quo of that lifestyle or that lens, like you said, Luke, you know, that, that lens of the lifestyle that we've built or that we've been given. Yeah, I agree. On the second question, how do you help move people from I'm not racist to anti-racist? You know, I think it all goes to the tool. That, that we're giving our kids. Um, and, and I want to reiterate, it's not a new set of tools. You know, most of us have talked to our kids about how to act when there's a bullet. You know, how mm-hmm. is that different when there's racism, racism involved? You know, it's just bullying for, for a different reason, not the smallest kid or not the girl or not pulling the hair. You know, so mm-hmm. we've already given our kids these tools. This is back where we talk about the values. Um, just empower them to, you know, and let them know, you know what? It may be everybody else who's doing it, you know, but I've raised you to stand up for what you, or to not take part in things that you know are wrong. And and maybe to stand up, maybe to walk away, depending on the value, depending on the household. Um, but we're already giving the kids these tools, just kind of expand the scope. Oh, yeah. And absolutely, definitely yeah. not. Don't be afraid to befriend them as well. Befriending, if you're in an area where there is not diversity, um, you know, befriending that family that is is diverse and getting to know the parents and you know their you know their how they work and their customs and courtesies of their family. I feel like would educate the whole family as well because the reality is, if it's just the kid, that's not going to do us as good. If we can educate as parents, as we you know, we're talking as fathers and parents. If we can educate the whole family, that will broaden the aspect 
And, um, you know, yeah, that's it. Kids are consumed with the notion of fairness. I mean, they don't want to hurt animals. They don't want to hurt trees. My kids' feelings are hurt when people drop trash. They're already <laughs> mm-hmm. to to be advocates. All we need yeah. to do is give them the data so that this is just another area where they can be, where they can show their version of advocacy. Yeah, and kids really need the research shows that kids really need explicit messages about um, racism and um, and how to be anti-racist. Um, and so, really. Um, again, this is like the language that my partner is, uh, uses a lot in, in Speak Up, her organization, but like racism is a lie. Uh, it's a lie that um, people with um, lighter skin or white skin are better than or more valuable than people with dark skin. And that is not true, you know, and like kind of putting it uh, in that framework of like fairness and a lie, like things that they they already have some conception of um, so that they can say, oh, okay, that, that's what this is, right? Because I think the less we question it and the less we just sort of go along with it, then the more they feel like, well, it's not that big a deal, right? But we wouldn't be quiet if there was a bully um, bullying someone who is smaller, right? And so why we shouldn't be quiet, we don't want to be quiet or teach them to be quiet when there's, when someone's saying something that's bigoted or, or biased. Um, so I think those explicit messages and getting comfortable with it, um, part of the the work we do in Speak Up is we have like a whole session that's focused on role playing. And we like put up, we, we get scenarios that parents have said, this is what my kid said to me this week. How would you respond? And we role play it, right? Because it's like, to me, I think learning the language of race and racism, it's like learning a language, right? And um, as a white person, it's not a language I was taught growing up. Right. So in order for me to become more fluent in it, like any language, I need to practice it and I need to, like, get more confident. Um, so those role playing and, and talking about it with a partner or a friend, um, that's a way to kind of like prepare yourself for this conversation and um, starting young. Right. It's like starting at three or four years old. A lot of people think, oh, I'm not going to talk to my kid about that at that age. Like, I don't want to, like, ruin like their their image of like what um what how you know great a society we live in or something and like they already know right they're they're seeing they're again they're seeing this stuff so let's let's like be real with them um obviously i'm not sharing like really really violent stuff with my three-year-old or scary stuff but at the same time you know i'm I'm not gonna like delude him into thinking like that the world is perfect because that's not going to be helpful for him either so we just got the 10 minute warning um so if we can just take a few minutes on, on these last two questions and that way we have space in case uh, any other questions come through uh, one of the questions that was provided to us is what are we willing to learn to make our children thrive mm-hmm. you guys think i'll just a quick answer out there i think if we are willing to be uncomfortable, I, I think that, that that creates a space. Um, and if we're willing to show our children that we are uncomfortable and that we don't know, I think that has value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's a crucial word. Um, that's something like as a as a white man, as somebody who like has more of a the option to opt out of 
um, of these conversations if I if I wanted to. Um, I think that's especially key for um, like a keyword for me to hear and apply. Um, like if I'm if I am comfortable, then I'm probably in the I'm not racist camp, not the anti-racist camp. Um, and like that's going to look different for every person, right? Um, like that. Um, like it may make you really uncomfortable to go to a protest to um, to do a, any number of like actions in your community. It may make you really uncomfortable to to call out your family member who you've never challenged on one of their beliefs that like what they're saying just isn't isn't true. Um, but uh, yeah, I think the the willingness to like get out of my comfort zone is, is really crucial. So thank you for that word you did. Hmm. And if, if, if nothing else on that one, um, this is an important question because it'll apply to all of us at some point. How do we say sorry when we make a mistake or step in it? Yeah, I, I, actually that was, I was gonna add a little bit to what you both had said. And, and so I think that's a good bridge, but um, I think uh, like I'm really trying to model both in my relationship and my, you know, my, with my partner, but also with my kids, like, um, saying I'm sorry when I'm wrong, um, and having like practicing humility and not pretending that like, I, I, you know, know everything or that I've got, I've, I've got it right. Um, so I think that's something that I want them to, to, be able to that's a skill or like a approach I want them to be able to have as well um, because I think you know I just think it's really valuable to be able to listen to people um, and you know I, I had another I had an experience with a, a good friend of color um, where I did step in it uh, just a few weeks ago right after George Floyd and the you know that sort of the uprising here in Chicago and I knew from talking to him and just texting with him that he was struggling and rather than like reach out to him and just listen and hear what he was going through. I sent him like a text uh, with like a video, you know, thinking like I kind of knew what he needed and I didn't hear from him. It was like radio silence. And then like three days later, he, he like t t uh, texted me and he's like, I love you, but like you really, messed up and that really hurt when you didn't you know when when you sent that video and i felt sick to my stomach and i felt terrible and um but i knew like that that was really important for me to hear and i i i just you know i wrote back a text and i apologized and i just said you know you're right um i i really did screw up and i i appreciate the feedback you know and um and, you know, we're back on better terms now. Fortunately, um, he was, you know, he was able to kind of forgive me. Um, and I really appreciate that. But like, I think if I had reacted, you know, and, and gotten really defensive or been like, you know, what are you talking about and, and ignored or denied what he was saying, like, it, I could have lost that friendship. Um, so like, again, practicing that, like, um, that humility and, and saying, I'm sorry, and 
acknowledging when I screw up is, is for me a really important thing I want to practice for myself, but also for my kids. Because it's messy work. It's really messy. I think it takes, uh, it takes cooth to be able to say that you're sorry, you know, in a situation where you might not know, like we said earlier, you have that bias and you didn't mean to step in it. So it's kind of, you know, knowing that knowing when to take that step back and say, you know, accept that there's something going on because at the end of the day, we can't tell somebody that they're not being racist. I say that right. You know, if, if I get offended, no one can say that I, I'm not offended. And that's in any case, not just racism, but specifically with racism. You can't say that, you know, if I say that I, I'm offended by that, you can't tell me that you're not. And so that conver- how does that conversation go from there? How do you say sorry after that when I'm like, hey, you're being racist and you're like, ah, I didn't mean it like that. Like, that's the, you know, how do we navigate that conversation? Hmm. That is, um, I mean, it is, it is just the, the simple bowing down and, and understanding and asking questions to further understand, you know, where do you come from? Where do I come from? Um, and why do I feel, feel so strongly about this? And, you know, I think the most important part of an apology is once you understand each other, where do you go from there? You know, you can break away or you can get closer from this. It might expand your mind um, to where you're more involved in that process or in that person's lifestyle or cu- culture or customs. Um, and it might equal you breaking that conversation and breaking friendship. I think that's a reality that we have to understand in anything that we do is that once you put it out there, you decide where you're going to go with that conversation and that friendship. Um, and hopefully, hopefully it turns out that you guys can be on the same page and expand your minds. Um, I do know I've had friends later on, you know, either weeks, months later, come around and, you know, realize that conversation was different. Um, and maybe something happened in their life that expanded their mind and now they see it differently. But, um, Mm. those apologies are, are, are heartfelt and, uh, hopefully not shallow. Um, so. Mm. Mm. This work is a marathon, not a sprint. We we will hang up, hang up on like a Dr. Cisco, but they'll, they'll be, um, pitfalls along the way. And I think when we can be open and honest about when we've made a mistake, that helps us get back on the road um, to making some progress. Absolutely. And I think, I think that that's how the healing is going to happen is that we, you know, if a mistake's, mistake's going to be made, we got to love each other through it um, and, and be humble in the moment so we can put down our shields and our guards and look at each other as, as human beings and as as peers and brothers and sisters and being able to set that aside and say, you know, yeah, it's about color, but you're hurt right now. What can we do about that? Mm-hmm. Brian, Can't hear you, Brian. Speaker, but... <laughs> I knew that. I knew I was going to do that. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Um, uh, now, now I've really made my grand entrance. Um, so, yeah, I, I really appreciate the four of you to, to stepping in, as, as you were saying, Brett, to, to this messiness. I think um, we've had some comments from members of Fathering Together saying, like, why are we doing this work? You know, like, why, why bring up these tense moments? It's, they're hot topics. 
And a lot of the reasons these topics are so hot are so kind of messy is because we haven't ever really talked about them. We haven't as, as a society in address kind of the systemic ways in which racism plays a part in, in our world and not just racism. There's so many other isms, right. That, that we kind of just allow to exist. And so I, I just want to appreciate the four of you for modeling a conversation and, and helping our viewers kind of see how we can navigate some of these tough conversations and, and humble ourselves enough to say either I'm, I'm sorry, I haven't acknowledged your pain or, or, how do I step into this and and just begin a conversation from the youngest of ages to, to where we are now as as fathers and adults? So, um, again, appreciate you all, Britt, Corden, Didon, and Luke. Really appreciate what you're bringing to this space, but also to the communities you're a part of. And look forward to many more conversations one-on-one -on -one with you, but also just to see kind of the work that you're doing in your community. So, um uh, I'm, I'm sure my kids will be will yelling at me shortly too. So um, if you do have more questions as you're, as you're watching, if questions have come up for you, please don't hesitate to reach out to me or any one of our panelists. If you're looking for resources, um, again, put those questions in the comment. We'll get to those resources. We're, we're building more resources on our website, fatheringtogether.org. So please navigate your way over there if you have follow-up questions. Um, after this, or if you're viewing this um, after the fact when we've got it recorded. So until then, uh, appreciate you all again for, for being on the panel. Appreciate you all for listening and being a part of today. We will see you around uh, our group and have a wonderful day as you navigate these conversations. Peace, everyone. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the Dads with Daughters podcast, we invite you to check out the Fatherhood Insider. The Fatherhood Insider is the essential resource for any dad that wants to be the best dad that he can be. We know that no child comes with an instruction manual, and most dads are figuring it out as they go along. And the Fatherhood Insider is full of resources and information that will up your game on fatherhood. Through our extensive course library, interactive forum, step-by-step -step roadmaps, and more, you will engage and learn with experts, but more importantly, dads like you. So check it out at fatheringtogether.org. If you are a father of a daughter and have not yet joined the Dads with Daughters Facebook community, there's a link in the notes today. Dads with Daughters is a program of Fathering Together. Find out more at fatheringtogether.org. We look forward to having you back for another great guest next week, all geared to helping you raise strong, empowered daughters and be the best dad that you can be. We're all in the same boat. And it's full of tiny screaming passengers We spend the time We give the lessons We make the meals We buy them presents Bring your A-game Cause those kids are growing fast The time goes by just like a dynamite blast Calling astronauts and firemen, carpenters and muscle men Get out and be the world to them Be the best dad you can be Be the best dad you can be